I appreciate you staying here. I know um, you're, I don't know if you've ate dinner. Did you eat dinner? Okay. Um, no, on a serious note. Yeah. If you need to send some signals our way, if you need to go, you know, we would, we would understand. Yeah. Okay. All right. So. Um, thank you for having us. Obviously, this is this time of year. We are here to present, this is stage one, really the superintendent's uh, recommended budget presentation. We're happy to present information that we have, provide some context and information hopefully the community um, can find value in and kind of how we develop our budget, what the drivers are, what the requests are, and then hopefully we can answer any questions you have. I'm joined by Miriam Goodman. Um, we're really lucky to have Miriam here um, as our fiscal steward for the district. And, and she's just been tremendous through this process and she brings a, a depth of knowledge and a breadth of experience around this that we hope um, you, you feel like you were well informed by the end. Okay. So you heard um, Portrait of a Grad referenced earlier today. I know that you're familiar with this as we've presented this in the past. So um, this is really when we develop our budget and try to look at um, how we can continue to provide the level of service this community expects. You know, this is what we try to think about at the end of the day, what we're trying to accomplish for our kids. And these are the skills. The district strategic plan, um, these were the five goal areas that we had. So as we look to continue to build out our budgets, you know, it's really important to look at where, where your plan is and how is it supported as you move forward, particularly when it gets tough. So as we look at our systems, you've heard a little bit today from one of the schools, but we have school level and district wide um, plans and goals this year. And I think that alignment helps, uh, has helped us throughout the year to kind of have those conversations and really try to look at um, equity across schools and try our best to, to put together a budget that we feel um, represents our needs. And there's never um, enough to, to do everything we do, but it's certainly something that helps us with our conversations. Before I kick it to Miriam, just would point out that um, you know, one of the things that's come up before is around our decrease in enrollment. And despite an overall decrease in enrollment, I think it's really important that we talk about not just the impact of the pandemic, but um, the needs of students. So students' mental health needs are rising. There's an increased need for academic intervention and support, which you've heard referenced in a few meetings in different capacities. Um, also, our uh, increased need for students receiving special education services is another area. And finally, just the social-emotional health and well-being uh, of our students requires us to have additional supports for kids. So I won't read these verbatim, but there are slides in here that talk about this is a, the national impact on students. And basically, we tried to break it down. And what are the gaps in knowledge? And then what are the gaps in mental health, the concerns? Um, we've seen the largest decline across the country in student performance on the NEAP. Um, there's a reference to it at the top, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, since um, for grades four and eight since the 90s. And our reading scores have declined as a country since, you know, when I look at dates like 92 and 1990, those are 
um, throwback years for me, and um, good music, but not something you want to be looked at for student performance. I think we've grown a tremendous amount. I think we owe it to our kids to, to not be looking at a stat like that. And mental health concerns, we've continued to see the impacts of the pandemic, right? And we see 40% increase in youth sadness. This is nationally. Um, the next slide that I'll talk about also reinforces. So across the nation, but also it's pretty consistent with what we're seeing in Franklin. And you look at some of the data that we provided here. There's MCAS. There's also a map, which is our assessment tool that we use for our students. And you'll notice that um, a decline in literacy, uh, math and, and um, literacy are areas that we continue to see uh, a decrease. And that's where you hear about interventionists coming in and providing to try to fill some of those gaps and build out those skills. And ultimately, um, and not ultimately, if you look to the right, mental health concerns, this is from the Metro West Health Survey. This is our data. Um, and you see increases um, in, a, in a variety of areas uh, that impact kids, uh, students' mental health, whether it's you know, suicidal ideation, uh, feelings of depression, and things of that nature um, are, are increased. So, you know, I had someone ask me two weeks ago, why can't you just teach math and English? And it was a serious question. It wasn't meant to be sarcastic, but it was, you know, why don't the teachers just teach and focus on that? Why do you have to be everything to everybody? And the reality is, is, you know, we want to be a support system to all kids, but we don't have a choice either on when a student has a need, we have a moral and legal responsibility to support them. And it's not simple enough to say to a teacher, just ignore behavior, ignore mental health, and just focus on academics. So when we talk about the supports that we wrap around within our schools, they're built in a way that allow, the goal is to support students so that they have the mental, they are in the mental place and the, and the, and the, the mental space to be able to access their learning to the best of their ability. And that's really what we try to achieve to do. And when you see supports beyond a classroom teacher, all of those pieces are moving in the background to make that happen. And the, I said this at the last budget, joint budget subcommittee, you know, the research is out too. There's nothing more important than having a very solid classroom teacher in front of your kids to educate them at a, at a high level. So it takes a whole system for that to happen. Um, so we benefited, you've heard us reference ESSER 1, 2, and 3 funding, right? The federal and we have state grants that helps us provide a multi-tiered system of support. You've heard that used in the academic and the behavioral realm. So previously and you know in the future, we look at the educational support personnel, the interventionists I mentioned to help fill some of those gaps referenced in the uh, last slide, and also counselors and social workers um, that we have within our schools to help our students across the board. So <clears throat> these are just two slides that I just would point out because I wanted to paint the picture of what it would look like for those types of students that we have within our building. So we have a pre-K student that may have a learning disability, and they have an individualized education plan. They're being provided specially designed instruction. They're being transported. And ultimately, they have a teacher who is their um, special education teacher. Maybe they're receiving occupational therapy support, and they are also assisted within their classroom by an educational support person. So there's, there's just like one profile of a student and the types of needs that exist there. And if you notice classroom teacher across the board, because that's what everybody has. So we want to 
can't, you know, could count that. And as you move to third and fifth, we just put a different profile, a student with some trauma in their background, maybe it's manifested in behavior, so they're receiving some counseling support. Maybe they're on a safety and support plan. Maybe they had a violation based on their behavior, so we have to include some administrative support and work with the family. Um, you heard 75 hours of, of um, safety care occurring, so there are a lot of ways this could look. In this particular profile that I kind of made up, but this does exist, we may be, we may be collaborating with DCF in some, some degree. And then below, you can look and see the types of teams and workers, an adjustment counselor, social worker, are all working um, to support a student like this. And in fifth grade, right, we have some lagging skills. You know, but with those lagging skills, we're providing some intervention. Maybe they qualify for Title I intervention. There uh, is support within the classroom from the math and literacy specialists and, and digital learning integrationists. And maybe they, they participate in an explorations program. Um, through the exploratories, and they, they've chosen STEM. So just try to point that out as kind of the way we educate kids. You'll notice for middle school, I won't hit on every single bullet, but ultimately here's a sixth grader, um, a similar type profile as someone receiving special individualized, uh, specially designed instruction. You have a seventh grader, once again, some behavior issues that you might see, and it might mean that we filed a child requiring assistance to try to bring the family together to help support the student. And then we have uh, that eighth grader who is learning English. It's not their primary language, so we have language-based goals within the classroom that the teacher's providing. There's also an, e an ESL teacher, um, an English second language teacher, who is assigned to work and educate that student. And then ultimately, um, they participate in some of our clubs and activities after school. And um, I'll move to the high school. So our 18 to 22 year old program, you have transportation um, to and from school, but also out in the community. They could be getting coaching, they could be working out um, in our community in various places. Uh, they're getting specially designed instruction, and they might have occupational therapy, um, and an offsite job coach. So these are the types of things that surround a student. And finally, uh, 10th and our 12th grader. So if you look at this, this could be a student who's arrived to us in 10th grade, trans re, re, um, or transitioning back to high school, they're receiving support, but maybe they were a part of some of the programs that we offer. They might be in the Bright program as a transition to get back into the general ed setting, but then they also participate in DECA and Jazz Band, and they have a guidance counselor and school adjustment, and they're involved in the community in, in a variety of ways. And finally, um, I picked a student who may be homeless that we're working with them um, to provide transportation to and from school. They're participating in senior project. Maybe they've taken some AP courses and um, they're on the mock trial team. So I just tried to point out the picture of a kid. And these are just profiles, but I can tell you that these are all things that exist within our school. And we do our best to educate every single student that we have. But there are a lot of other things that encompass what we do at Franklin Public Schools to provide the experiences like you heard from some of the students that were recognized tonight to make that happen. So we wrap that all up and we come into a budget. Um, so tonight we're here to talk to you about your FY24 budget, the superintendent's recommended budget. Um, what you see on the screen is the process to date. Uh, in November, uh, there was a school committee budget workshop uh, to talk about the school committee's goals and priorities. 
Uh, we've worked through the last four months with administrative meetings um, and FinCon meetings and capital meetings uh, to talk about our budget, to talk about Chapter 78, which I'm going to get into in a little bit more detail in a second. Um, and we have reached today uh, where we present to you the um, superintendent's recommended FY24 budget. So Chapter 70 is, uh, as you know, Mass General Law, Chapter 70 um, addresses funding for public school districts. And they start by determining the foundation budget for each district. The foundation budget is the amount that the state determines each district should be allocated to provide an adequate education to the students within that district. They determine that amount, then they de decide how much can Franklin afford to pay towards that amount, and then they backfill it with Chapter 78. So that is how the formula works, uh, and it's based on, on the factors that you see. They won't get into all of them um, at this moment uh, on, the, on the screen. So um, when you talk specifically about Chapter 74 Franklin, um, our foundation budget for FR24 preliminary, preliminarily is uh, $65.2 million. From that, DESE has determined that our Franklin contribution towards that $65.2 million is $47.2 million, and that's based on the property wealth and income and municipal revenue growth factor all of those things um, wrapped up in within Franklin um, come into that required contribution. So they take the state foundation budget, subtract what we can uh, afford to pay, and then they fund the remaining with Chapter 70, uh, which is not $18 million if you actually do the math, but in fact, it's $29 million because Franklin is a whole harmless community. We're getting uh, um, uh, held harmless with the amount of state aid that we've had for the prior years. Uh, and so we're only going to get a minimum amount of aid, uh, which is $30 per pupil, on top of what we've already been receiving for the past multiple years. Uh, so, so that minimum aid for FY24 is uh, $153,000, and um, we take that amount, our full Chapter 70 aid, bring it back to, uh, on the bottom of the screen where you see it comes back to us, we add our local contribution that we're still required to uh, spend on education, and that becomes our net school spending, which is the minimum amount that we're required to spend on students. So basically, just because the state is giving us more than we should be getting doesn't mean that we can't, we shouldn't be contributing what they say we have to contribute as well. So our net school spending is 76 million, whereas the state's determining that we um, have to spend 65 million to provide an adequate education um, for students. So, um, that's, that's um, the short answer to Chapter 70. Short overview. Any questions on the formula? We'll continue to, to present. I just didn't, I wanted to kind of pin, pin the formula for the, the way we described it. On the formula? Just this slide will continue. I just didn't want to. Any questions on the formula? Um, not on the formula. It just seems like, we're going to, how come we're formula? 
So that uh, the, the second one, the required local contribution, how much can Franklin afford to contribute? So if I'm, if I'm kind of understanding it right, and kind of look at, um, I know it's, it's 10.9 million, we'll kind of call it 11 million is the whole harmless. So effectively that, you know, per the state, you know, the, you know across the whole commonwealth that they're following this formula, that Franklin can afford to contribute more but it isn't, and because of that, the state is kind of providing an additional $11 million due to this whole harmless provision? So, so, kind of. So the state has decided, determined that Franklin can afford to pay $47 million towards the adequate amount of $65.2 million, okay? They would generally backfill that with a differential, which is $18 million. But the formula has worked to our benefit uh, in the 90s up through um, to get us to this level of chapter 78 where we are right now. And because our enrollment is declining, our, um, the state's already providing more to us. And so they're not gonna take that away because we're already getting more than $18 million. So they're not gonna take it away from us. That's where we are being held harmless and getting that $11 million in excess base aid of 10 points. Nine million in excess base aid. So, so the formula says that we can afford to pay forty-seven million dollars, which we have to pay anyway towards education in Franklin. Um, but it also allows for the state to give us additional the eleven million dollars in addition um, to the eighteen that, um, when added to our contribution, brings us to the net school spending amount of seventy um, seventy-six million. And now, and are they, you know, for the formula, required to continue to, to give us this $11 million? Or if, if something, you know, the economy goes south, if, if something changes at um, Beacon Hill, you know, are we guaranteed this $11 million in perpetuity? No. Nope. So that hold, hold harmless funding is um, something that concerns me on an annual basis. Uh, they haven't, the state hasn't decided to withdraw hold harmless fund funding or to eliminate that provision. <coughs> But at this point, it is still um, being, we are still being held harmless. So we are still getting that $11 million. Um, if at some point the legislation changes, we would have to consider that significantly. That would be a concern, a significant concern. Yeah. Yeah. So, so hypothetically, had the state uh, removed that the provision to hold that help hold us harmless for that eleven million. Would that translate to the required local contribution in essence? Is that what we're, what we're saying? So the eleven million we go from the forty seven point two million to uh, fifty eight point two million? Nope. It wouldn't it wouldn't necessarily it wouldn't transfer to that different bucket but every year that the state's gonna determine what it's gonna what is an adequate amount to provide an education for the students in Franklin. So so the 47 million is always going to be based on the property wealth and income um, and they're always at this point they're going to backfill it based on how the formula is is written now they're going to backfill it with chapter 70 
but then when you take the Chapter 70 money and add it back into the required local contribution, that's what's going to be our required net school spending. So could be that our required net school spending would go down at that point in time. Um, it, 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 I can't, you know, in the 15 years I've been here, I've never heard them talk about reducing hold harmless aid, thankfully. Uh, but I, I wouldn't necessarily anticipate that that would require us to, to um, increase our, our contribution to meet that Our contribution is going to increase because the foundation budget itself is going to increase over time because of the Student Opportunity Act, um, which is on the next slide. Uh, but, but that, so every time the foundation budget increases, the required contribution for Franklin is going to increase as a result of that. Gotcha. Thank you. Okay. Okay. Yes, go ahead. I love the visuals. I love the, the minus signs and the equals and the plus and the arrows and the, the pictures. And I really do think it helps. Like the colors are all matched. I think like visually it helps with the map. And so held the harmless just to sort of piggyback off the prior question. So it's basically in lay folk terminology, it's like free money that we're getting because they said they would and they just start continuing to give it to us. Essentially. And the rug, they could pull the rug at any point. Right. Essentially. Okay. Good job on the slide. Good. 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 Its impact to Franklin is a little different than might, it might have impacted in other districts, but to us, we are uh, receiving additional circuit breaker reimbursement, uh, additional charter school reimbursement, and an increase um, to our required local contribution. Uh, and we did just talk about the, the almost $11 million in excess base aid, second to Boston only, who's $13.7 million, and you have some uh, other districts who are there as well. Um, with uh, Menden Upton at 6.9 and Bill Ricca, for example, at 5.9. Um, and, and as I said, um, Chapter 78, we are um, a minimum aid district, so uh, our, our aid is not expected to increase more than $30 per pupil annually for the foreseeable future. So usually the next question we get from folks who are still learning about school budgets is, um, okay, but we, you just said that Franklin's paying more than the minimum. So while that's true, it's, I think it's important to put in context to what communities contribute over. So um, I just think that's an important slide to kind of, um, kind of illuminate that these are the Hockamock League. We thought that was a recognizable group of towns that folks that live in Franklin can, can um, kind of understand. I know Shaw has played and beat a lot of these towns along the way in her athletic career. Um, but certainly, um, it just points out kind of where Franklin falls <clears throat> within that percentage of net school spending compared to some of our locals. Um, we didn't pick every geographic. Franklin's on the on the left edge, if you will, the west edge. So we could have done a circle around, um, included other towns, but um, that's where we fall within the hawk. Yeah, and so so in FY22, we spent 9.4 million dollars more than we were required for net school spending. That's 13.5 percent more, 13.3 percent more. Um, 
75% of districts spend more than 13.3%. And in fact, in FY21, the average was 42% over net school spending. And so what you saw in this in the previous slide was where those Hockamock districts fell in that percentage. Okay. Um, and then when, just to summarize the, the Chapter 70 formula, um, our enrollment is going down um, Net from, from this year to next year, we're anticipating a decrease of 1.47%. Um, the state foundation's budget is going up. That's a, a result of the Student Opportunity Act, which has increased uh, the rates in certain categories like healthcare, um, free reduced or low income, uh, and, um, and special education, for example. Uh, so those categories have increased, which raised the foundation budget for all districts in the state. Then they determine what we can afford to pay. That amount has also gone up 5.4%, uh, $2.4 million that frankly can afford to contribute more than it contributed last year. Uh, Backfilling the differential with Chapter 78, as you can see the, in the FY24 column, the 65 million less the 47 million is only the 18 right there, um, but we're actually getting 29 million. Again, there's the difference in the uh, $11 million in base aid uh, and our required net school spending again at $76.2 million. So we're only getting that extra $30 per pupil, which is $153,000 this year, in addition to what we have been held on. Uh, and, and this is um, where our percentage has um, of the foundation budget, where our local contribution as a percentage of the foundation budget is going. Um, from 50% back in 2010 up to 72.4% until it caps at 82.5%. Uh, and just another visual, uh, in terms of state per pupil spending, which is just another data point which we'll talk about in a minute, our per pupil spending, we're in the 20th percentile statewide, so 80% of districts in Massachusetts spend more on a per pupil basis than Franklin is spending right now. Um, on the next slide, you'll see that uh, Franklin spends $15,982 in district uh, on, per, on students uh, on an average. This is 16.1% um, less than the state average. Um, overall, we're 12.2%. And, and um, in the Hockamock League, you can see that we are, you know, again, um, where we fall with the other districts in the Hockamock League in terms of their per pupil expenditures. Again, just another data point that we look at when we talk about who we are, what we do, um, and how we provide for our students in the town. Um, so your net school spending is a data point, your, your excess space aid is a data point, your per pupil expenditures is a data point. So as we look specifically into the superintendent's recommended budget for FY24, um, our current FY23 budget is at $70.2 million. The superintendent's recommended budget for FY24 is $73,103,500. That's a 4.11% increase um, and a dollar increase of $2,882,675. Uh, historically, and feel free to jump in anytime you want, um, historically when we look at requests um, that have been put forth from the superintendent at this time of year uh, to the council. You can see the last five years, 
in terms of what the superintendent has requested and what the council allocation has been um, back from 2019 uh, when we requested three million and actually got three million, which was wonderful, um, and up to uh, 2023, which uh, similarly we requested 2.4 million and um, received 2.4 million as well. Uh, but you do see one year in there where we requested 3.9 million in 2021 and received $800,000. So um, we um, will talk to you about that on the next slide when we um, tell you some of our assumptions um, that we don't know what our preliminary increase from the town allocation from the town is going to be at this point in time. That's a TBD. Um, certainly, we uh, can hope for $2.88 million. We know what the town's revenue is anticipated to be, as some might have heard at the finance uh, or the joint budget subcommittee. Uh, the town will take in approximately $3.1 million revenue next year and new, new revenue next year. Uh, and so how they determine what our allocation will be is yet to be determined. So that's a big TBD. Health insurance is going up 5.2% next year. Uh, our district tuitions, we're going to talk a little bit more about that. Our private school special education out of district tuition rate increase as set by the operational services division has gone up 14%. That's a $776,000 line item increase to us just in that one line. Um, we're going to show you a little bit more about that in a minute. Other out of district rate increases are 5 to 10% for our um, collaboratives uh, that we belong to. And our transportation contracts, both um, both our big yellow buses and our uh, van, van um, out of district transportation contracted vans uh, are going up 8%. Uh, and the bottom line, on the bottom, but certainly um, not in priority order, uh, increased use of one-time revolving funds. That's a significant amount of of an increase in funds. This budget is supporting $7.1 million in, in um, revolving funds, which is an addition of $1.5 million this year. Um, that's a, a historic number. A little scary for me. Just to give some context to the tuition rate increase that Mary mentioned for 14%. So here's historically from 2011 to today. Um, so this came this fall. Um, and districts across the board. You heard the legislative breakfast. This was the, this was the item I was referencing when we talked to them about. I don't have any uh, solution except that we needed to we needed to factor this into our budget and how how this would impact us. And ultimately, the, what it means is it's on the slide, but this means deferment in investment initiatives. And it means basically looking to um, eliminate and cut existing resources to make up for $775,000. So uh, in summary, again, this is uh, where we are currently. Our current approved budget is 7.2 million by category, by major category, I would say. Um, salaries and health care benefits um, basically increasing to $2.5 million. Um, our out-of-district tuition uh, going up 700000 um, You're You're seeing the impact of added revolving funds in some of these dollar differences. Uh, so, so I just you just heard me say that that 14% increase is $775,000 out of district tuition, but you only see a line item of $700,000 increasing there. It's because we have an added um, 
uh, amount of circuit breaker funds that we're offsetting the budget by so that the increase is only $700,000. Um, so, and that, and, and those added revolving funds that we're offsetting the budget by are also evident in the other expense line item in transportation as well. Uh, so this is just a, a, another visual. The, the budget, again, $73,103,500 is a 4.1% increase um, over FY23. And you can see that 87.3% um, of that is um, for salaries and health care costs. So with all that in mind, you know, those are the drivers, those are the assumptions, and those are the factors that we had to take into consideration as we move forward. Um, in order to put forth a budget that you know, represents the needs, you'll find that we'll talk about the things that we have put forth as new investment issues, but we've also included what, what was not included um, as part of our um, you know, initiatives or requests. So um, to start with pre-K through elementary, um, you'll notice um, the initiatives for the, the preschool is a pre-K classroom teacher and related service provider at 0.5 of an FTE and um, uh, pre-K ESPs to the, to the tune of three and then a 0.2 um, elementary speech and language pathologist. Um, I reference these. These help us meet the needs of some of our student populations that we have within the district. Um, in your budget book, it gets into more detail. Um, it's called description and rationale um, for some of these positions that we have. Um, The secondary level, you'll notice um, a middle school essentials teacher. So we provide in-district programming. And at one of our schools, uh, we have a need for an essentials teacher to teach specialized program. In addition, uh, we're looking to include an ESP for one of the middle school specialized programs that exists. And finally, a point three for the high school team chair to account for the, um, the number of students on IEPs. Finally, you may recall from the capital requests, um, we had to make up some of what wasn't approved. So incorporated in this budget was the $90,000 for the curriculum resources for capital. Um, we continue to try to explore opportunities. Um, through grant funding, you'll hear about that a little later. But ultimately, um, we needed to include it to make sure that we could provide um, the resources that we need when we prepared this budget. So in summary, $407,500 um, would go to those, um, those types of positions. Um, I would just point out um, there's nothing on this list that I would say is um, this is really about trying to maintain and provide services across the board for our students. Um, but certainly we try to be as thoughtful as possible, trying to keep an eye on all of the budget considerations that we had. But ultimately, this is the, these are the um, initiatives that we put forth. You'll notice on this slide, um, in, in your budget book, the initiatives that weren't granted. You'll notice that you'll see special education, um, classroom, team chair, a uh, percentage of an FTE, um, some tutors, um, and an assistant principal for student services to account for um, the number of students that we have um, within our district and in specialized programs. That was a, an ask, but when, um, when it came down to trying to put forth a budget where we tried to balance and honor 
you know what was requested and what was asked for and what we felt like we were able to to, to put forth and land in a budget um, with the budget assumptions that we made around the ask for the local con contribution that we asked um, th these are the positions that weren't included but wanted to make sure that we honored the fact that they were asked and advocated for At this point, we have um, we have a placeholder in the budget for uh, reductions. We're anticipating that that is uh, roughly a million dollars. We do anticipate uh, being able to absorb many of those through staffing reductions, um, whether through attrition or retirement or resignations. Um, but I did want you to be aware that there is um, that that significant uh, number in terms of budget reductions that's already built into this um, this this budget. Um, those those um, are not finalized at this point in time. Um, there are still modifications that we will uh, likely make uh, and decisions we will have to make around that. Um, and um, we're still waiting for the town allocation as well uh, to see where that ends up. The other piece I would say is when you when we talk about that and, and it does say um, staff reductions to attrition retirement, the end of the day when we, when we talk about reductions whether it's a person who's teaching for us for a position that means it's a reduction in that particular position so just wanted to kind of point that out it may not be um, a human who's returning in the fall potentially depending on what we receive for um, in our finalized budget but i just want to just call attention to that um, as a factor we have some enrollment slides we received the question you know what about um, our enrollment and are we keeping up with our enrollment across the board so we have an elementary slide which shows this this has been presented um, in previous presentations as well this year um, middle school you can see uh, our class sizes and that gray line um, looks at the teachers that we have in comparison to the students and we added a high school that was a question that came up along the way where you know, secondary is a little bit different to quantify, so when you have a, um, an elementary or a middle and you have a, a classroom with a teacher at a high school, because students um, take a variety of classes and they mix and match and whatnot, it's harder to quantify like one-to-one, -one, like 25 kids are in this third grade classroom or whatnot. Um, so ultimately what we did is we um, took the average based on the core subjects that every student takes and we were able to put together a chart that basically shows kind of where we're at. And there's an XYZ on the right-hand side. We talked about this at the beginning um, at length, and we talked about the needs. I gave examples of students at the beginning of this presentation, different profiles. I think these are the types of positions that we've seen increase um, over time, pre-pandemic and through. Um, you'll notice in a few where they've climbed and then kind of leveled out. Um, and we've just tried to accommodate and, and meet the needs of our kids in a variety of ways. And these are just a few examples between special education, school adjustment, and nurses. So when we talk about ESSER and ARPA funding, um, you can see the uh, summary of uh, the allocations that we've received over the past couple of years for both types of funding, um, both of them being federal funds. Um, we've received roughly $1.9 million in ESSER and ARPA funds uh, over the past couple of years that were allocated. Um, the, the 
projected expenses by the end of this year, we anticipate 1.2 million being spent with about $565,000 estimated um, to be available for use in FY24. And then you'll notice the column all the way to the right, which says zero. Um, our ESSER funds will be spent by the end of next year as required. Um, and so in FY25, uh, we will have to make some decisions as to how we uh, handle the positions that are currently being funded by ESSER so as not to, um, so as to avoid um, a fiscal funding cliff. Um, and we would like to, um, as we do every year, I think we review all of our positions and um, identify how we would absorb some of them into the budget and, and what kinds of reductions what kind of reductions we might make to be able to um, shift funding to support other uh, critical needs. This is ESSER 3, so um, this year um, for ESSER 3, I'll start at the, start at the bottom, um, what's included and in, what has been included in ESSER 3 funds um, at this point um, with regard to elementary interventionists, for example, would continue. These are the new um, positions that were um, looking to apply the ESSER funding for. To, to Miriam's point, this is to for next year, but ultimately if there's any um, intention to continue to fund um, these types of positions, if we were able to um, receive the money uh, with, with proper funding, these positions would need to be incorporated into our operating budget to, to be sustained, just to be clear on that. So this gets us some of these positions now, and then we have to be prepared for the future on what that might look like. But these positions directly impact students at the middle level with regard to intervention and our school adjustment counselors um, trying to add more at the, at the middle level. So as I mentioned earlier, we, um, we use um, budgeted revolving funds to offset um, the local cost of, um, or to offset the, the appropriation budget. Um, revolving funds are um, monies that are come that come in based on fee-based programs like K-Ride transportation or athletics or things for extracurricular activities, and so those revolving funds um, are used to offset the cost of those specific programs. Uh, Circuit Breaker being the largest, uh, which is a reimbursement program for our out-of-district um, tuition uh, students that meet a certain threshold in terms of cost. Next year, we are, um, as I said earlier, budgeting uh, an extra, an additional one-time funds, um, $1.5 million. You know, I thought it was, uh, we, we think that it's pretty important for us to be aware of the funding that we have in the bank, I'll call it, before we start asking for more funding um, from other sources. Um, and so this is one-time funding that if we spend $7.1 million next year, if we spend $7.1 million next year in, in revolving funds, it will not be available for FY25. Um, so that's what's being applied in FY24's budget. Um, again, if it's if it's spent, it will not be all available, just like your home budget. If you're saving money for a trip, and you have $5,000 for your trip that you've saved, and you've brought it in that one year, and you went on this great trip, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have the $5,000 again next year to go on another trip. So, 
Not with that chapter 70 funding. Nope. The way it is. So, <laughs> nope. No, on a serious note, it's, it's true. It's a one time. I, I don't mean to make light of that, but ultimately. We're going to ask them. You don't have an accident, not even just a vacation. Like you just need basic things like to repair a broken leg, and you have to spend the money. You yeah. know. So just to talk through our process, here we are. Uh, we're in March. We have today. Uh, next week we have the um, we have we have a budget subcommittee on Friday. Then we have our next school committee meeting is on the 28th, which will be the hearing, the open hearing. And then we roll into April um, with continued discussions with the budget subcommittee and the school committee um, to look to vote on April 11th. And then we'll be waiting to see what happens with uh, the state uh, ways and means. They'll release their state budget. Um, the uh, FinCom will uh, discuss the school, have discussion of the school budget. And then we roll into May, which is the town council's public hearings and ultimately look to um, have our final budgets approved within that time frame. Um, in the Anything to add to that? Uh, no, I would just say that um, once the final budget's approved, we enter it into our financial software and allow folks to start spending and purchasing materials and supplies for next year. Thank you. Um, thank you both. So I just wanted to make an opening statement and then we'll go through, I think we'll do like a round robin, everybody gets a turn, we'll even include our FHS student reps if they have any questions or comments. Um, so first on behalf of the entire committee, thank you Mr. Jagir, Mrs. Goodman, the office staff, our budget subcommittee for all of your hard work. Um, our role as a school committee is to advocate for students, faculty, and staff. Over the last several years, we have called attention to the enormous challenge of maintaining services while costs continue to increase. We continue to work leaner and leaner, making hard cuts each year. We've lost programs and positions. We can't find the money to meet important critical needs such as additional counselors, interventionists, ABA tutors, and special educators. We cannot continue to ask our staff to do more with less. When you lay out our budget, the money goes to salaries, insurance, transportation, and out-of-district placement. When you add all that up, it is 96.2% of our budget. We have no control over the 14% increase in out-of-district tuition. 14% increase from the state. The cost of transportation for our special needs students, no control. The cost of health insurance, the rising expectation to meet the needs of students and families beyond math, reading, and writing. We have no control over state and federal mandates. When we start talking about cuts, serious cuts, it will mean bodies, people that we cut. That will mean some of your family and friends. It will mean staff that provide valuable, immeasurable services to your child. An increase in bus fees, extracurriculars, cutting athletics. The writing has been on the wall for years. We've reached the tipping point, folks. Now is the time to start paying attention. What do we want our community and our schools to look like? How are we going to show we support our students, our budding artists and musicians, our students with learning differences? 
How are we going to show we support our teachers and our staff? A budget is a statement of district priorities and a plan of action on how we'll reach the goals set for Franklin Public Schools. Arguably, this budget does not adequately meet the needs of our students, faculty, and staff. I will continue beating this dead horse as long as I am on school committee. A budget is a moral document. What we fund is what we value. Do we truly value our students, teachers, staff, community, and town? Because if so, we need to start funding it like we do. Okay, so community, I think we'll go around one by one. Neil, can you start us off? Sure. I have never seen a more clearly articulated, mindfully presented, and earnestly justified budget in my life. And I think it speaks to the professionalism of Lucas, the central office staff, and all the administrators and faculty and staff who offer input. But it also speaks to the deplorable fact that our schools have to beg this town for money. <clears throat> Included in the large budget book are eight drivers for this budget, and I'm gonna to speak to four of them as quickly as I can. The first one is pandemic recovery. We've heard from several schools, and I appreciate their honesty about the increase in challenging behaviors and the gaps in education because of the pandemic. Those behaviors actually have a budget cost to them admin time to deal with it, individual treatment for the child, classroom-based, and all school programs. If we find out that our children are depressed, we have to react to it. There's a budget cost to that. The ESSER funding runs out, but the challenges our kids face don't have the same deadline. It's called the fiscal cliff, and we've heard about it for years. And if we don't fund it, we're telling our kids to jump off the cliff. The second one is the teacher contract. This burns me up. The derisive tone with which some citizens and even elected officials speak of our teachers is disgusting. As a teacher myself, water off a duck's back. But as an elected official, it disgusts me because the contempt for teachers has real budget implications. The contract that we negotiated with the teachers over many hours was an actual collaboration between the administration and the members. And as far as their salary increases, they were based on data gathered by both sides that revealed in every measure that our teachers are paid less than other towns. And we saw 20 years of data. Some years, teachers took zero increase in salary. No raise, no COLA, nothing. Some years it was 1%, sometimes it was 1.5%. Some years it was nothing at the beginning and then a meager raise halfway through to fix the budget, to do more with less. Some years they were frozen on the previous lane. And there are real implications. If you understand compounded interest for your investments and your savings, then the lack of that compounded interest set our teachers back over 20 years. You cannot recruit and retain people or hire the best people for all the positions if you don't pay them a decent wage. And these are professionals with PhDs, multiple master's degrees, master's plus 75, people who work with our children, with their bodily functions, people who drive them to school in the snow, people who serve them meals. But I would like to remove our faculty and staff, our nurses, our ESPs, our cafeteria workers, our administrators and band drivers as an easy scapegoat. Yes, 80 to 85% of all school budgets 
are salaries and benefits. Our employees aren't executives with corner offices and a travel budget in their line items. The, our schools aren't state-of-the-art factories that have to replace and upgrade every single time there's a technological advance. So stop talking about teachers and stop talking about how much of the budget they cost. Because I want, when you talk about cuts, you are talking about our kids. So I'd like to speak about our kids. We love hearing about the achievement of our kids, whether it's the theater festival competition, the scholastic art winners we heard from tonight, and the most impressive, Ryan Martin. He spoke of the resources he has made, Yusuf. The, he credited his teachers and the resources of his school for where he is. But guess what had to come off the line item? Upgrading the video studio. Ryan, you may have been the last. The last thing I'd like to talk about is the complexity of programming. I'm tired of hearing about just decreasing enrollment tossed around because it's such an easy soundbite to excuse inexcusable attitudes about our schools. And please correct me if I'm wrong, I think in 2027 it's, it's like not decreasing anymore. That's pretty soon, so stop saying it. It's shocking and despairing to hear an elected official he say, why don't we move some of the school's budget to the senior center because we have declining enrollment. I don't know if it's willful ignorance, mendacity, or just some kind of un a subconscious hatred of schools. As Mr. Sorry, as Lucas said, the needs of each student are more complex, and I won't repeat them. But our special populations have increased. If overall enrollment is down, the special populations haven't, and these are programs we should feel proud of, should welcome funding. And if we get to brass tacks, it's a legal and moral obligation to provide. And if it's not in our district, then it's an outside placement that can run $100,000, $200,000 a year. Our January presentation from the special ed department indicated that 18% of our students are in special education. When you don't want to fund education, you're telling 18% of the kids, you cost us too much. Some of these kids in decades past would have been stuck in a classroom to be babysat. Their complex needs ignored, or worse, it wasn't even too many decades ago, they would have been shunted off to an institution. What kind of town do we want to be? The type that tells our most vulnerable students that they aren't wanted, that they aren't worth spending money on, or give them basic skills, quality of life, and full participation in our community? I don't want to live in a town that behaves that way. And I don't want to hear any more in my day. <laughs> Your day, go back in medicine, in travel, in, in, in technology. No one wants what you had 40 years ago, and no one is asking to, for that, except in the schools. So I want to leave with a few facts and one question. According to the 2013 Town of Franklin Master Plan, the median income was 89868 This is data gleaned from the 2010 census. The 2020 census reveals the median income was 127,608. That's a 41% increase in 10 years. Has the increase happened for everyone? No, of course not. 
but as a town, our affluence has increased, but our commitment to education has not. I looked up the most recent census data to see where we rank in terms of wealth per capita, and we are number 37 in Massachusetts. So we're roughly 13% in the top wealth, and we're 20% in the spending, the bottom 20%. It is immoral and reprehensible. Let's not say that 2023 was the year it went downhill. I would hate to tell Ryan, Roth, and Shaw, I guess this was the heyday of Franklin. So my question is, Miriam, Lucas, Paula, Tina, anyone in your expertise, does the monetary commitment, the allocation of resources, the tax base match the needs and ambitions of this town? No. Thank you. I think we've, we've put forth a budget which we, are, we want to land and afford, but ultimately you saw what was not included in our request and it's a result of us um, having to manage what our budgets allow for us. So. <clears throat> um, one really hearing uh, paint a, a very rosy picture for FY25. I uh, can't wait to to get there. Um, we'll say right now. Uh, first, I loved. Um, I know uh, this has been you know a slide and statistic kind of what's what's online right now in terms of. Uh, the state per pupil spending, kind of how far to the bottom we are. I know during the, the joint budget, um, you know, committee, uh, they were, you know, like it, it didn't uh, kind of carry the same weight because you, you, you do look at it. You see some of the communities that are way at the top to, to skew the numbers, uh, which I thought was uh, made the inclusion of the percent over net school spending that much more impactful because that's just straight. You know, this is what you should be spending. This is, you know, just you yourself, how much more you're spending over, you know, kind of uh, what the state's uh, kind of recommending, especially then when you kind of take a look at it in the, the Hoffa Monthly. Um, second to last, you know, only only Attleboro, right, is, uh, is, is has a percentage over net school spending less than us. Franklin's not making the playoffs uh, with, with that um, type of contribution, and it, it, you know, not to disparage you know any of my peers uh, over in Attleboro, but that's also not kind of where I think the rest of the Franklin community uh, believes themselves uh, to be, and it really is, um, you know. And I thought that that slide right there is is just incredibly telling, uh, unfortunately. But I do have a specific question. Um, you talked about a one million dollar reduction, in, you know, through attrition. So, and I, I think you said this this morning, to kind of clarify. So that's already like kind of baked into these numbers, or like so effectively right now there's a increase of two point eight million. Um, if if you know there was you know uh, not a single individual kind of left, uh, it would be three point eight million. Is that correct? Is that kind of how I understood it? So, so we've built in a million dollars in reductions to be able to support some additional um, 
investments that are identified here. So those, we're basically looking at all positions and other reductions that are not positions and seeing what we think we might do differently in those areas to be able to support different investment areas. Um, so yes, that's, that's built into this budget. So if we kept those million dollars worth of items that we think we might want to shift to do these things, it would be an additional million dollars, yes. So it's not as though uh, it's, you know, if, if we're not allocated, you know, at this level, it's like, well, you know, like at the 2.8, we'll not to worry because we have an extra million dollars uh, that, you know, we're expected to, to have, you know, based on just the loss of staffing or uh, through reduction. This is already kind of baked into all of those numbers. So any anything that's not allocated, uh, you know, to meet that 2.8 is going to be a direct loss in either you know new initiatives or classroom teachers. That's correct. correct. Or other reductions in other areas. Right. Right. Okay. Or an increase in fees for. You can you get into my round two question, but I can't. I can't no, I. Sorry, I'm sorry. It's now. Yeah, thank you. Um, so I the, the great points from my colleagues so far. Um, one thing I wanted to bring up is slide number 35. Um, so I just wanted to just, just paint a picture around this. And then looking at FY23, went from a classroom size of an average of 19.4 to projection of 20.1. Um, so I just want to make sure I'm clear with this. So what we're saying is, I know, I know today we do have classrooms that are over the 20 students, probably like around 22 to 24 max. But what we're saying is that now, for next year, we will have more classrooms at the higher level to get us up to the higher average. Um, and we're going to have teachers that are, uh, I think we did this in the previous meeting that we said that about like 25% of our students have special needs or are on an IEP or need some special assistance. So we're having teachers. Um, manage more students with, uh, we'll say five to six students with special assistance and then they're trying to kind of teach and educate and bring along all these students without loss of learning. Is that kind of a fair assessment and assumption? So when we modeled out the budget, not just reductions, but how we've kind of figured out what we're committing to for next year, we tried to put in our, we have, we have guidelines we'll look at between class sizes. And every school um, had the same criteria for how are we building out for next year. So if we have 24 kids coming, that's 24 kids that should go to a classroom teacher. So we did model out a range, basically a classroom, which, is in, which was in alignment with what we've done for um, the last few years around you know, 18 to 22 if it's K to two, and then 22 to 25 if it's three to grade 12. That's ultimately, ideally, how we how we start this process and try to model out. So the idea of not having um, additional people or whatnot, it's the touch points and the bandwidth of educators to work with the um, the amount of the volume of students that are in their schools. And, and our, our teachers do a tremendous job, and they have a tremendously um, challenging job. And when I say teachers, I mean educators across the board. But um, certainly, um, you know, there are impacts to us being able to land a budget that we can support for next year, so. Yeah, yeah and I guess my, my concern is really around teacher burnout. I mean, I, I've, I've coached and for soccer, and that, that's a fun activity. You know, kids want to go play, run around, that's easy. I can't imagine 
um, trying to focus 20 plus students and managing multiple needs, focusing multiple different IEP programs, focusing on different pull-out services and just all that coordination um, with the numbers that we have and then them being able to be successful for the entire year without, you know, impacts and, and mental impacts of their, of their personal well-being. We visited every single school, I've been in front of every single staff this year at each building and a common theme that I'll share. Um, so in a good year, this is these are challenging jobs and they've only become more challenging for our staff and our admin and leadership. But the common theme on top of everything that we um, experience every day educating kids is there's a resilience factor that's a common theme across 10 schools and it was said basically the same way it was. Kids, um, the building up that resilience in the classroom has been one of the more challenging things that they've had to face and it really comes down to when learning gets hard, it's, it's, they're trying to coach and work and mentor and support kids through when they quit, when they um, demonstrate negative behavior because they're struggling mm -hmm. to learn, um, they're not self-regulating. So all these things factor in, and then you add in what we heard a few weeks ago at our school committee meeting around when we can actually screen them for academics and screen them for SEL. That's on top of what we're, what's behaviors that are manifest, manifesting in the school. So it's a challenging um, position, and you know when you look at class sizes, you know every single principal is advocated for the lowest class sizes they can have across. Every teacher wants that. We also know that we have a fiscal responsibility to have um, the right number of classes across the board and have kids be able to be in a class where they're not um, over over what they should be. So these are the challenges that we have in our roles to advocate for the funding we need to do that. Understood. Thank you. Okay. Uh, thank you for all this information, for all the hard work that you put into putting uh, together this budget, and yeah, for very clearly communicating the current um, financial situation for financial public schools. On slide 33, uh, you mentioned the requests that were not included in the FY24 budget. You maybe discuss the opportunity costs that we'll experience for not including those? Sure. So I think I touched on it a little bit already around the touch the the touch points within our schools across the board. So whether it's an elementary, middle, or or high school, these were advocated for as needs as where people saw they had needs and we without including those those are these are less staff members that we would have deployed in our schools to work with our students across the board um, so that means that the current um, thresholds and, and numbers that we have across the board for in any variety of areas so we use special education or you could use classroom teachers it just means that we um, have um, less staff assigned and distributed among the kids that we have at each of our schools and levels as a result. So. Thank you. Please. Thank you for all the work on this. I um, especially appreciated the executive summary. I feel like it was really comprehensive um, and really explained where we're at in a, in a nutshell, in a two-page, which is difficult to do, so I appreciate that. Um, to sort of piggyback off of what Dave McNeil just asked about. So the list of the critical needs not included on slide 33. Um, the fact that, um, especially the special educators, 
aren't included in the recommended budget is especially concerning, considering a recent email we received from a Keller staff person, and within the context of what we've been learning a little bit about through the redistricting analysis advisory committee about significant Keller space and staff constraints. We, we know that IEP services are legally mandated, this is not optional. I'd like to see these 1.5 FT special educators included in our budget, along with the ABA tutor positions that are on this list on slide 33. These people who work, these are people who work directly with students with special needs and their services should not be watered down. Oh, yeah, thank you for the uh, presentation of the data. <coughs> so, you know, I remember like last year's budget, and like nothing's really changed except there's more. You know, there are uh, there are more needs. There's a lot of stuff after uh, the pandemic, um, and you know, costs money to you know give these kids these services that they need to you know, give them the level of education that they're you know, legally legally required to, to provide it, you know, and we looked, you know, exhaustively over the budget last year, and there's, there's nothing that, like, can get cut out, and I think we would still provide the, you know, the education that they need, so it's, um, it costs money to educate our kids, and it's, uh, and I really appreciate uh, Camille's speech that he gave, it was, uh, you know, real nice, and I agree that, um, you know, to you know, uh, find the money and uh, you know increase this budget, you know, budget to, to build a support, you know, our kids. Thank you. Sean, I wasn't sure if you either of you had any questions or comments. Uh, no questions really, but I just want to first of all thank you for letting us sit in on this. Um, it is good for us to see some of the budget issues as well, but. I just want to thank you guys for acknowledging some of the problems that the students have in day-to-day -day lives. I know you touched upon the post-pandemic issues, looking at both mental health and just the academic issues themselves. And I see that in my own life, I see that in my friends' lives, my peers, you know, <coughs> me and Sean, we interact with a lot of the kids in our grade. And so, on behalf of them, and just from us too as well, we just want to thank you guys for acknowledging that and, and for working towards solutions because Again, we just experience this, but then it's good to know that there's people <coughs> with the power to do things that are actually working, looking for solutions. So, thank you. Um, I just wanted to say thank you as well in your consideration <coughs> to the small details and like really looking into those things is appreciated and people notice it. But the mom is a teacher, I know the struggle can be real sometimes, and um, I know that it's appreciated by a lot of people. Um, it's my turn again. Um, if I could turn everyone's attention to my little handout that I brought in. Now is the time to open it. So, I had wanted to bring this up at the joint budget subcommittee meeting, but I kind of got distracted when it was suggested that we close more schools, and I kind of lost my train of thought. Um, and you know, we're always told, don't talk about the $11 million, because we don't want people to know we have the $11 million. And I was going to say at the Joint Budget Subcommittee meeting, it's too late, MASC has been presenting, you can't see on the, on the screen, but it's there, 
it shows Franklin way up on top of all of these other towns, all of the money that Franklin gets. And it's already receiving a lot of attention from other school committee members who are talking about reaching out to their state representatives how it is not fair Franklin, one of the wealthier towns, gets this much money. So I just wanted to make that aware, make people aware that that is, and MASC did reach out to me before they posted it to give me a heads up that, hey, I know that this is gonna sting, but I'm creating this visual, heads up, this is coming your way. So, yay us. So just, everyone take a nice look. Just to put that on everyone's radar. Round two. I wish I were Katie Porter with her whiteboard. Because <laughs> I'm trying to think of a, um, but I can't, I can't draw. But the metaphor to me is um, in how the population, you know, kids need some change. Because you have a wellness, a community wellness center. And it's typically uh, does annual checkups and sick visits and vaccinations. And it's, it's, that, that's what I would call the basic education, um, is like a wellness clinic, you know, um, provided to everybody, they get their annual checkup. And, um, and then you have, some of those patients are gonna need specialist care. And they're gonna need surgery or an MRI or chemotherapy. And not to fund it is to be like, oh no, no, you got your vaccination, you got your annual checkup, we don't pay for that. And a lot of kids, and once you discover new diseases and new treatments, you want those, just like our district wants the best things for its kids. But we have to pay for it. That's it. Sorry, Dave, you're round two. All right. Um, so Miriam, you kind of actually alluded to uh, some of the user fees. Because as it stands right now in this budget, uh, fees, so, uh, you know, bus, uh, you know, transportation, club fees, athletics, music, is all going to uh, stay as it is. Is that correct? That's correct. So something, um, so like uh, transportation uh, went up, is it 8%? Yes. And uh, I thought, I, I saw somewhere um, in this big old binder where uh, the the fees, uh, you know, the, just uh, sign my little guy up, it's like $350 uh, to ride the bus covers about 40% of the transportation costs. So what would, you know, the average, you know, family, what would that cost have to be increased if we were to, you know, say, you know, cover uh, the whole 100%, the whole? Um, it probably need to double. We're paying in excess of $700, roughly, um, for, to, to transport on a per pupil basis to transport. Um, so, so, it would, it would have to increase up to, up to that amount, 700 and change, to um, to fully support it. Um, this budget accounts for some additional revolving funds, which are fully supporting it, more so, pretty close to fully supporting it. But again, next year, that if we spend all of that next year, it won't be available for everyone. 
because yeah, so, right now, yeah, like so much of, of those costs, transportation, clubs, music, the athletics, um, is being heavily subsidized. You know, transportation is 60% subsidized, you know, by, by the budget. Um, but so obviously that's going to be a cost that, you know, families would have to incur. Um, you know, you know, uh, you know yeah, if, we, if we didn't have the money to be able to continue to subsidize those costs, just additional rises in, in fees. Uh, for for buses, for clubs, for music, for for athletics. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So thank you for this um, visual, this document. Um, so it actually kind of alluded to one of the questions that I had. Um, so I know. Uh, so slide sixteen is the one I'm actually referring to. Um, we always talk about our percent over net school spending and compare it to the Hockenlock League. And my thought was, well, how do we compare against other school districts that are uh, in that same whole harmless state. Um, and I just looked at the quick glance of this slide compared to the, the slide, the, the document that we have. And right now I got like Mansfield, North Alboro, Plainville. Uh, I didn't get past that. It doesn't but, have everyone on. Yeah, it couldn't fit everyone. Yeah. But I'm wondering, my, can we do a comparison to see how Franklin compares to maybe the towns that are held harmless that are you know, five million plus? just to see where we are in comparison, because just looking at the few that are on this list in comparison, you know, uh, Mansfield, North Alboro, Plainville, um, we're still below those those few that I've seen. Um, it, it, I think it'd be good to get an apples to apples comparison, whereas, whereas this, it's, you know, we're comparing those that are not in that same same state, so it's just a nice visual. Thank so. you. <laughs> From our investment initiatives, which of the district's strategic objectives would you say are being best addressed and which would you say might not be addressed as much? So with regard to some of the teaching positions, I think um, each of them meets really rigorous and engaging curriculum when you're adding like our um, essentials classroom teachers. And um, I would also say that you're also talking about social emotional um, well-being. I think when we think about the counselors, that even though they're funded through ESSER, um, your school adjustment counselors um, fall into that category. I think every teacher um, contributes to that first goal, our own social emotional well-being. Um, I did a lot put the alignment to our district improvement plan in the in the document when you look at the investment initiatives next to the rationale to kind of list out where we thought that best fit. But whether it's a preschool teacher, a counselor, or um, a you know tutoring um, I'm sorry an interventionist I couldn't recall the word um, I think they all fall within um, social emotional learning adding to the rigor and trying to help our students and then engaging all of our students to meet their needs can't think of an adult or a staff position that we've asked for that wouldn't do that I think they're ones that weren't met to Elise's point that would also continue to contribute to support that as well Yeah. Um, so around the idea of addition through subtraction, what can the district get rid of or consolidate in order to free up time or money or resources or bandwidth for other necessary things? So um, it, in, in this conversation, it applies to budget, but like sort of the big idea of addition through subtraction also helps to support staff well-being. So that's a great question. And uh, we, while we haven't identified specific reductions, is that what you're talking about? 
or yeah, yeah. And so, as far as you know, so Mary would sort of reference some some reductions or <laughs> estimated um, that sort of frees up some some funding for other places to cover other thing other necessary things. Um, I guess I guess I'm also sort of looking for examples. Like I remember just off the top of my head, the DLIs when they were here, they say they go through all the subscriptions that the district's paying okay. for, sort of figuring out who's using it or is it valuable enough to keep paying for these types of things, and then getting rid of the ones that aren't beneficial enough. I understand the question. Though. Thank you. Um, so we met with. We meet as a central office team, but look at every department and try to look at where's the, I use this term loosely, but like the return on investment, mm -hmm. basically, um, and try to look at, and we met with Dr. Rogers around teaching and learning, professional development, um, our subscriptions. Um, we tried to look at every, um, all aspects of scheduling and how we utilize folks um, to try to make sure that we're maximizing and creating as much efficiency as it's appropriate to provide the services that um, we are expected to provide. But software subscriptions is an area um, we can every year continue to look at, because not uh, we, don't, we don't rinse and repeat. When we looked at um, our just allotments for school allocations, um, try to create, we looked at aim to create equity across the board, but also look to see where are areas where we can um, create some cost savings. Um, that's another area. Um, we continue to apply for grant funding just across the board and whenever they come up. We meet on Monday mornings, 9 o'clock. We are, uh, that's one of our topics, is really looking through every single category of, of our aspect around, um, whether it's teaching and learning, special education, um, human resources, the business department. So um, those are a few areas. Also programming, just in general. How can we um, revisit not just software, but our in investment initiatives with regard to programming? Where, what makes the most sense for us to continue? Um, can we? Can we utilize the materials that we have? Do they make sense to continue to use? Can we get more time out of them? And I think those are discussions that we have um, at each level. So I don't know if there's anything else you want to add to that. Yeah, no, I, I guess I would add um, that we have um, consistently looked for other opportunities for funding as well and grant funding opportunities. Um, and, and we've been successful in receiving um, many grants that we do apply for competitive grants, um, not just entitlement grants based on enrollment. And, and I think that um, certainly um, is, a, is a significant contributing factor as well to some of the things that we can continue to support. Absolutely. And I appreciate the, the, the term, we don't rinse and repeat. You know, it's not like you just have the auto subscriptions like, you know, some of us do personally and you just sort of forget that it's going to automatically bill you every every year for whatever subscription that you haven't used in years. So it's like re-examining those, weeding out the ones that aren't working anymore, getting rid of them, and really just just focusing the, the funding and the money and the time on, on the ones that are really worth it. And where it's possible to quantify with data, like mm -hmm. using what we use and, and how often we also try to incorporate that as well. It helps us rationalize decisions and um, explain the point. Thank you. That's helpful. Thank you. Um, yeah, I mean, I know the schools is being as lean as possible by you know, looking over everything again like last year. And um, I mean, I, I don't really don't have any you know, other question. I mean, it's not like you know, we're going to find this $2.8 million solution just lurking around in here as a wasted item. And that's just not going to happen. So, um, I'll, in the spirit of saving time, I'll, that's all I have to say. 
round three. Um, so I'm just going back through last year's presentation and looking at all the positions that we had um, brought on with our coronavirus relief funding. So we've got digital learning integrationists, substitutes, interventionists, counselors, uh, ESPs, DEI director, specialized program teachers, tutoring, OT services. What happens to all of these positions when the money runs out this year? Do we have to make all of these cuts and we lose all of these people that support our students and staff? So it's any position funded currently by a grant, when the grant runs out, we have to make a decision on prioritizing it as including it within the budget or um, not supporting it moving forward. That's the, that's the bottom line. Thank you. Come here. Um, <clears throat> we see sometimes these cuts in positions that people don't really understand or their child doesn't receive those services, so they, you know, they might roll over their um, understanding. Um, but are things like languages, um, sports, theater programs also something that in the future we'd have to think about cutting because at a certain point you can't cut any more staff. You cannot cut any more staff. So if, if, if the town doesn't step up to its responsibilities for funding the types of schools that they claim to want their kids to attend, at what point does it become, I'm sorry, we don't have freshman football anymore. Are those things that are in the control of the budget to cut because there's nowhere else to cut? I'm not suggesting that they be cut. I'm just asking the question. So I, sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. So I would say those are hard decisions that you all will have to make. We all will have to make um, at some point in time, very soon, um, if we continue on the path that we are on right now. Thank you. That's a great point because I know that other towns have had to cut athletics, freshman, JV from their budget. So I think that that would, in my opinion, I think that athletics should go before music and arts, but that's just me. And I'm sure it's not a popular opinion, but if we have to start making cuts, that's where I'd start. Dave? Um. <clears throat> Yeah, kind of actually, I'll let that same kind of through line talking about like the, the unallocated initiatives. Um, you know, uh, items that were requested but not um, able to be included in the budget. Uh, I know, you know, we also kind of saw this with the capital um, improvements request. And this is a question, just a recommendation. I think it's, it's great and it's important to be able to kind of continue to, to have this. Uh, to be able to kind of showcase, you know, this is there's much more that's out there that unfortunately, um, you know, even you know, you can't even be on the wish list, uh, you know, because it's just kind of so far out of the, the realm of uh, realistic budget right now. Um, and I think it, I don't know if we if we have it. There's a question: Do we have a running tally year over year of all the initiatives and all of the positions that we weren't able to to fund? 
Um, I don't think year over year I have that tally. I do have um, uh, an annual estimate of items that were reduced, reductions and efficiencies that have happened for multiple years. Um, but, but in terms of the investment initiatives that we have not been able to fund that we've put forward, um, I haven't tracked that separately. In, in just as a recommendation, it might be something uh, worthwhile, even just a you know little Google spreadsheet to say on uh, you know this year these are some of the, the things that we were, were talking about. Um, you know, I think one you know it really kind of provides um, that that through line from you know point A to, to point B. Uh, you know, for instance, I know like was, you know, my colleague kind of brought it up uh, during the capital improvements request. We uh, you know on that list was uh, a lot of the film equipment. And you know, my, my colleague, uh, Mr. Charles, had uh, mentioned just the very next meeting, uh, you know, Principal Hannah was here at the high school talking about, well, here's some of the new offerings that we're, that we're going to include, and it was, it was a film class. And he kind of asked, how does the fact that we can't afford to, to replace uh, the equipment impact uh, some of these programs? And then to, to kind of say, all right, now here we are, you know, recognizing, uh, you know, uh, uh, Ryan his achievements and he's acknowledging the fact that you know the resources contributed towards that um, just to you know sometimes if you know maybe you not know, you know kind of paying attention you know uh, meeting after meeting week after week um, it might be you know you might kind of sit and wonder like you know for instance I know myself I kind of was like well you know I heard uh, that elementary schools had world languages and uh, you know at, at some point in the past and uh, I know I think we one of our first budget meetings, we kind of all talked about that. And Dr. Hearn came up with a presentation, say, all right, here's what it would be, and here's how much it would cost uh, if we wanted to reintroduce that. But I think to be able to kind of keep a running list to say, here's all the programs that um, either got cut or that we wanted to, to be able to offer and that we just couldn't afford to do year after year after year, uh, you know, might kind of help uh, keep everybody informed. Uh, a better idea of you know of exactly what's going on, where that money is going, and, and where unfortunately that money isn't going in, in some cases. Uh, so, no questions or recommendation. Yeah. Uh, so slide 26 refers to the OSD 14% tuition increase. Um, so thank you for petitioning our legislators to see you know, what what options they can help as well. Um, but is, are there any other options that we can do as a district to lessen this impact to ourselves that we haven't done as of yet or that, that are, are kind of like things that are in, a, in the works that we're trying to investigate? I think in talking to my colleagues, one of the $775,000, but ultimately, if you imagine if we didn't, uh, we, Franklin has a very strong in-district special ed program model that exists. I think we offer a lot of different programmings to keep our kids, and you've heard Mrs. Morano and her team talk about this in the presentation. So um, I don't have like an equation to say like the next town over, but I know that my colleagues, um, if, if, they are, if they are spending to send students, more students out and not keeping in-district programmings, I would just say, what can we do locally? I think we're doing everything we can to provide in-district programming locally. I think that's the only solution that I can think of um, to, you know, and, and honestly, students who need the appropriate, you know, specialized education, if we can't provide it, 
they should get the education they need, and that's not not everything can be in district. So that was a question that I received a few um, a few weeks ago, just around why aren't all the programs in? And sometimes it's just we don't have the, the services or the model or the supports to educate every single student based on their needs, but we, we have a moral and a, and a legal obligation to make sure that they get that. So that's how that impacts us. But I do think when we can create programs, and I know that um, our student services departments continue looking at um, where we can continue to provide those types of opportunities. Um, where it makes sense. Um, so that would be what I would say locally what we can do is support the fact that we have these programs within our district. Yeah, I'm glad to hear that at least we're, we're exhausting our options and what we can do that makes sense. So, thank you. Thank you. Um, so the updated language arts curriculum resource is kind of one of the big ticket investment issue items. Mind uh, briefly just describing the benefit of uh, these I'd be happy to. I'm also going to have Dr. Rogers chime in. I will just say literacy is the plate in which all subjects kind of feed into. So um, having a strong core foundational literacy program is really at the root of this initiative from the beginning. I'll kick it to you. Sure. Sure. So um, it, the, the priority here really aligns with our second strategic initiative around engaging in rigorous curriculum and that guaranteed revival experience for our students. Um, and so what we're prioritizing is putting high quality research based grade level curriculum resources in the hands of our educators. Because what those curriculum resources do is they're like the, um, the, the menu by which teachers can facilitate learning experiences for students. So if we want those learning experiences to be guaranteed and viable, for all students, teachers need the resources to be able to do that. We need to put books in students' hands on a daily basis. And so that's really where that priority comes from. And I think embedded in that as well is the professional learning and the professional de development and support for teachers to be, to be able to um, most efficiently and effectively utilize those resources. That's how I Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Hi, I'm just like squinting because the font's so tiny. Because um, so I'm looking at slide seven, and on my paper copy, um, there are no references. But then on the digital copy, yeah, so you can't really see them here. But on this digital copy, I can see them. They're just teeny. So I'm looking at those the mental health concerns that um, the box on the right there. So my question was, is this Franklin? But then when I look at the stats here, it looks like. This isn't
Um, we there were so many of us that underscored mental health, mental well-being, and um, really just echoed that. There was a, that was a, that was a huge theme when we were sort of looking at the budget um, planning in the very very beginning stages. So. I guess, like, can you can you highlight how mental health and well-being is prioritized in this budget? Like, sort of, like, point us to a couple of the places where um, where where the supports are, where the services are, where like some just some places like where's our money going? We find what we value, right? So if we value mental health and well-being, and like where where are those? Um, sure. Places? So I would say slide. The immediate slide I would jump to is, is this the one? Um, our I can't find what slide it's on, but um, what's that? Oh maybe. It's our ESSER. So we've utilized our ESSER funding to look at incorporating in um, the school adjustment counselors, mm -hmm. interventionists. Um, we also are working, when I look at some of the positions that we requested, although they're teachers, classroom teachers, to, to meet some of the needs, the ESPs, of the REACH and specialized programs, I think I would also, I, would, I wouldn't want to exclude those from part of that, but um, directly supporting mental health would be the counseling staff that we've included. And we've said already, it's part of grant funding, so um, to your point around you know, being able to support those moving forward, those have to um, fall into the budget. But what we what we you know, have to do is look at how do we fund all of the items that we um, we want to see in play for next year, and that was one method in which we did it. And and back when that meeting took place and it was expressed, we certainly took that seriously. You heard a little bit from Parmenter today around second step that curriculum to try to build that out across um, the school and um, each of the schools that has that. And I would say also. Um, we look at our advisory program and really advocating for that through our negotiations with teachers to incorporate that into their schedule um, was another area. Just to, I just want to earmark a few points. And honestly, for all the things that we've done and advocate for, you know, the data is pretty compelling that you know it's clear that more needs to be done. And you know, we take that that seriously. And I think you know we heard from our students tonight um, about what they're experiencing and what their friends are. So. Um, even for what we provided, it's never it's never enough to try to meet those needs. For being honest, I appreciate it. I I knew it was in there, but it helps to sort of sure. highlight it. If I may compare, um, it's also in other pieces of other grant funding. So like our Bright program, um, clinical coordinator, and the support the academic coordinator are through the extra funds as well from last year. It'll continue this year. Um, our um, Inter, you know, our, our contract with the um, inter, inter project interface, you know, that's a referral service for mental health services, that's through the grant. Um, we have our um, our contract with the um, Wellesley Center um, to do our science of suicide um, screenings and education. So we're using a lot of grant funding to support our mental health, as well as different earmarks that we've got for Senator Spilker and whatnot. So we are counting on our grant funding to provide those supports, but it is a priority. I would also add that we are um, we have supported the William James uh, partnership as well in this budget. Uh, we're continuing to support the counselors and psychologists that we have and the other support staff that we have. Um, so so those those pieces already also speak um, to our social emotional needs of our students and the well. 
So while they're not new asks, they're sustained in right. this budget. That was that have been added over the years. Securing yet another uh, another grant, and uh, but but I but I also know that uh, there's a lot of uh, a lot of communities out there that have full time grant writers um, that can you know that just as as an investment uh, to be able to spend money and then we're just able to kind of get more uh, money uh, back from from grants as just you know one staff member who all they're doing is just uh, writing grants. And what's unfortunate is, you know, when we look at so many of the slides and talk about uh, so many other districts that are investing more in, uh, in their schools and in their students, you know, a lot of these districts are ones that they're investing in, they're playing offense, you know, with, with such uh, positions like grant writers. And they're, they're only kind of getting more money, uh, getting more investments uh, kind of coming on back to each student. And it's unfortunate when we kind of look at our budget, it's, it's we're playing defensively. We're, we're doing uh, the best that we can to provide a level service to prevent massive cuts uh, to athletics, to uh, the arts, to user fees. And, uh, you know, I guess I, this is to the community at large. Uh, you need to come and I kind of shared this story before that I kind of turned here to start on the town council budget meeting during COVID. And when it came to you know, see that budget. I know uh, I was, I myself was a little late to the game. Uh, that a lot of decisions uh, were made before that happened. A lot of conversations happened, uh, you know, before that, that football field meeting. Uh, and so, you know, for any members of the community that are, you know, at home uh, listening online, if, if, you know, there are some of these, these cuts that you don't want to see. Uh, if there are some of these user fees that you're not looking to have increased uh, bus transportation up to $700 just to cover costs, now's the time uh, to kind of start that conversation. Now's the time to, to talk to... Time being 10 o'clock. Per new school committee norms and protocols, um, I am going to be looking for a motion to either recess or a motion to extend the meeting? A motion to continue talking. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so do we have a motion to extend the meeting? It so, so, yeah. so, so moved. Yeah. Is there a second? Can I do a second? second? Okay, so moved. Second. Okay. Questions? Like extend indefinitely or extend for a period? <laughs> <laughs> extend until we're done, or we end now. Gotcha. Okay. I understand. Okay. Okay. All those in favor signify by saying aye. 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 Opposed? Mm -hmm. All right, Dave, you can keep talking. You were just waiting. I was. <laughs> but uh, to the community members, really, you know, uh, reach out now. Start those conversations now, uh, you know, with um, 
elected officials, uh, with uh, just you know, leaders within the community. If uh, you know, you, you don't want. We're not. I don't think. I don't want to speak for everybody, but. I'm not looking uh, to make uh, a bunch of cuts to athletics, to the arts, to increase user fees. Uh, that might be outside of our control once the numbers start to kind of come on in. Uh, and so really kind of reach out and ask, please have those conversations now if, uh, you know, if, if you think that uh, you know, we shouldn't be second to last um, in, in terms of investing uh, in our students. Uh, can I get? Can I take Megan's question as well? No. Nope. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. I'll try to make this one, and it's, I guess it's a two-part question. So slide twenty-four um, is very informative, and, and I know my colleagues have said this. They'll say this as well. This has probably been the, in my short tenure, this has been the best um, document that we've had, and it's very easy to read. It's been, it's given us some historical context. I loved the. Um, student profiles, I think it just really paints the picture of really what teachers and students go through and really all the things that make um, education what it is today. Um, and we've all heard the, the phrase, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. It, it takes a village to teach a child. And you put, put that picture there very well. Um, and uh, so thank you for that. Uh, but my question is around the historical stuff. Um, so we've seen in previous years when we've had our requests and the dollar amount that we've allocated. I'm glad that there are some years that it was at 100% and there are other years that it was close. Um, but what concerns me are the years that it was nowhere near what we had asked for. Um, so I guess, can I get some context as to like, what, if you probably, what happened that year and, and what, like, what was the fallout as a result of not getting the increase that we were requesting? Do you, like, are there any specific examples that uh, jump out at you as the things that we had to do to make the budget. Well, I guess I would start with 2021, um, which we were building that budget in the middle of a pandemic when we were shut down um, and didn't know where our state aid was going to end up. And um, I think that um, speaks volumes there because our state aid did end up in the end being level funded, but. Um, but our funding from the town um, reflected an $800,000 increase for that year. Um, I believe, um, I guess I would recall um, changes to allocations, uh, you know, for, for staffing changes that might have happened. I can't speak to anything in particular that might have been reduced in that year as a result of that. But you know, we we worked with the allocation that we were given, and we, um, we did what we could, the best that we could, to provide for students. Um, and sorry. Um, <laughs> and I guess from a recovery standpoint, do do you feel that like we were able to recover from that loss of that budget, or are we still kind of behind because of that? In the, in the sense, like a compound interest, where you're. you're while you're gaining, you're, you're still not, you're recouping what you had lost. Yeah, I think you're, you're not gonna recoup that loss. I mean, to the compound interest analogy that, that we've heard here already, you know, we haven't, our budget is, is looking for a 4.1% increase for this year if we had gotten that 6.3, uh, 6.03% increase 
in 2021 that we asked for, we'd be that much higher in this year. Um, so no, we haven't made that up, but we are looking at ways that we can reallocate our budget and, and adjustments and reductions that we can make to reallocate funds into initiatives that we feel are, are more critically needed. Thank you. Okay. Um, my question is to have the answers, but thank you again for all the work you've done. Okay, can I ask one follow-up to Al's? Like that just, okay. Okay, so as a follow-up to Al's, was that, was that the year that we had 100 plus educators lined up on 140? It was. Yeah. Remember? Yes. yes. Etched into my brain. Yes. yes. So that was, that, so that was felt. That was felt really deeply. And um, that was something that we had to do because we didn't know what, how, how it was going to look. And so we had to cut a lot of positions with with the hope and intent of hiring back a large percent, which ended up happening. But we didn't know if that was, we hoped that would happen, but we weren't sure that was going to happen. And in the interim, we did lose some people because they, they weren't looking for jobs. So, yeah, I remember. Um, okay, so then my real question. So so I have maybe two questions, but we're both focused on that, so three. So, Okay, so I guess based, I'm kind of following the rules. So based on what Denise was looking at the last year's budget presentation and all those um, positions that she had listed off that were funded by COVID, COVID relief funds, yes. right? So, so then if I'm looking at slide 39, this is just a clarification question. So I'm looking at slide 39. It looks like FY23, we had 1.2 million, and mm -hmm. Y24, we're looking at 565,000-ish of SR3. So those positions that Denise was talking about, like those are funded through receipt funds or SR funds, but they're not anymore. Like, did we absorb them? We haven't absorbed them at this point in time. We will oh. need to absorb them. Uh, or make decisions around those positions um, for FY25. Right now, everything oh. that we're funding in SR3 is continuing to be funded, SR3, yeah, is so. continuing to be funded in the current fiscal year and anticipated to be funding, funded for next year. Right, next year, FY24, and then FY25 is zero dollars. Correct. Correct. Right, so, so that long three list, pages. those three pages, those lo that long list that she had read off earlier, that's part of that 565,000. Gotcha. Okay. Includes those those folks. Oh, oh, gotcha. Okay. As well as some of the other folks that we are anticipating, like the middle school um, uh, interventionists that are, are we're anticipating. Maybe. I think that's my next question. So is that slide 40? Yes. Okay. So my question about this is: Are these are these new? So there's one, two, three, four, five positions, right? So are these new positions? Okay. So these aren't currently happening that we're trying to use funding to like morph where the money's coming from to pay for them. These are added positions to help support our students. Yes. As presented, these are new positions that we would hire. They'd be new FTEs added to the middle schools. And just to point out, that's our intention and our goal, and that's our recommendation. Um, we have to go through this budget process, but once again, it goes back to what we're funded, and then 
what's in the ESSER three grants, we may need to reprioritize based on what we are allotted. Does that make sense? It does make sense. And I think like what we you know what we've heard as far as parent emails and concerns around bullying and some of the recent presentations, the middle schools, not just in Franklin, everywhere, but middle schools, uh, mental health is shaky and needs a lot of support. And so I think that um, having this, you know, this is a, this is a, a powerful um, message of support. Much appreciated. So along the lines of the ESSER funding, I'll just, I guess, make a point like, that money is some money that we have to use before it goes away. Right? There's a deadline to, yeah. to so use it. Been budgeted and we need to use it up. We can't save it. It has to be spent on something. Correct. In accordance with the priorities that were set when the grant was approved. Yes. Which include interventionists mm -hmm. and, and mental health initiatives and learning gap, um, closing learning gaps. So. Yes, and a deadline for in essence September 2024, but it's really June 30th, 2024. Thank you. Um, just kind of piggybacking up with what Elisa said, um, talking about the supports and how things are shaky right now. I see on slide 41, um, athletics last year was. 420,000. This coming year it'll be 720,000 with an increase of 300,000. And you would just said that all of those positions that at least we're talking about would be 565,000. Is that what you said? Um, all of the positions in ESSER funding that we're anticipating being able to spend for next year would be 565. Okay. 565. Okay. That's what we will have left to spend in ESSER funding ne next year. Yep. And athletics is $720,000. Yes. Okay. I'm just making sure I understood. Thank you. Come here. No more questions. Okay. Um, I'll launch, uh, with the ESSER funding. Uh, the Bright program. Can you actually uh, elaborate? On that, how is it being utilized right now? Yeah. I'm going to defer to Mrs. Morano. Yes. So it's a program. It's a transition, what we call a transition program for students who are returning. Um, it could be from hospitalization. It could be students who are out due to concussions or other medical needs, surgeries, medical challenges. Um, it could also be students who are experiencing school um, avoidance um, due to increased anxiety or whatnot. And it's a transition program to get them back into school. It's in a supported room. It's supported by a clinical coordinator who is a social worker, as well as an academic coordinator who is one of our paraprofessionals. So they really work in this, this space. It's a quiet, it's a very calm classroom. Um, it's a, an, chance for them to get their therapeutics with supports, but also catch up on their academics as well, so they're not too far behind. And the goal is to transition them back to their their regular classes um, within eight to 10 weeks. So it really, the goal is to reduce repeat hospitalizations, repeat um, depression, um, you know, partial day hospitalizations, really help them be able to be successful at school. So, you know, it's, it's our first year, so we're having some bumps and bruises, but um, so far we're seeing some success. And then, um, 
Because I know when I think when you spoke about this, uh, it was during the first like, space needs assessment. Um, there was a question about uh, kind of physically where the right <coughs> program was going to be housed. Mm -hmm. Where is that right now? Don't know exactly the room number, but it's at the high school. No, I, like well, the high school. Yeah. At, okay, then that's, yes. <laughs> okay, the, 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 so, so like we're in the middle no, school, no, no. I'm not sure, but it's at the high school. Okay, so it right is now at the high school. school. We didn't end up creating a program at the middle school. It was too challenging, plus we wanted to get our feet under us with this one program. Um, I did go to the Bright Symposium today and learned a lot from our area colleagues um, who have them at the middle school and elementary level. So obviously that would be a goal someday. Um, we also right now don't have the numbers in our middle school level to a great need for a bright program, which is why I'd rather put those funds towards an actual, act, um, you know, a school adjustment counselor for the high school to help support those students. So. Okay, thank you. Yeah, because that's when I was going through this. I remember we we talked about the logistical difficulties of having at the elementary level. So right. the the funding that's uh, here for the bright program is specific to uh, the high school the level high school house level. at the high school. Correct. Uh, thank you very much. You're yeah. Uh, so just a call out. Uh, so thank you for slide number 38. Um, I feel like that that just shows um, the energy and focus and effort around the support structure that our students need, um, especially around the first line of special educators. Uh, where as you can see, it was a, a you know 10 10 people jump from 2020, 21 to 22 for 22 to 23, and we've heard throughout the year. Um, as a result of the pandemic, and it's really coming out of this and, and going back to uh, transitioning from uh, remote learning, you know, hybrid learning, and back to the day-to-day -day routines. This is an area that we need to focus on, um, and we need we we need to move the needle. Um, and all I see happening is if, if we're not addressing this now in the younger ages, it's going to go to the middle school, which we, we're seeing and hearing, and then ultimately it's going to get to the high school, which I think at that point it's even more problematic to handle at that point. Um, so just, just for folks to be mindful of, I mean, when we're talking about the salaries, special educators are, are key, and I think we, we've heard that there needs to be more staffing in that, and I, I can't foresee how we can do cuts, um, you know, if we don't get the budget that we're requesting, and also, you know, address the behavioral and just transitioning back to kind of a normal state, you know, it, it's, it's I don't know how we'll be able to manage. Are you all set? I'm going to skip now because she said you're all set. Dave, I know that you're not all set. I'm just going to after the gap. I want to fill muster up. Thank you so much uh, for, uh, for the budget. You know, I, I think this, you know, it's, it's, it's very thoughtful, comprehensive. Um, uh, so appreciate all the, the work uh, that went into this um, and uh, the continued uh, mirror, uh, explanation of chapter 70 in net school spending. Um, you know, I can't uh, say enough of just how informative and educational it, it always is anytime that, that we get to, to chat about that. Uh, so thank you very much. Yeah. It's my last one. Um, so slide 19 around the local contribution. Um, so as, as we've talked about, since I've been on here, um, people, but definitely before, um, this the increase year over year for the local contribution. Um, and just looking at it historically, you know, from FY10 through uh, 16, we saw um, almost 10 point jump, percentage point jump. 
and uh, I mean our trajectory in the recent years is a little bit steeper than that. So I'm assuming that we'll hit that 82.5% cap well before the the 10 year. And I, I don't see how Franklin wouldn't hit that given our like the the affluency of our our community. Um, so I just want folks to be mindful of that this number is not going to go down. It's going to continue to go up, and I wouldn't be surprised that in five years we're at the 82.5 versus the 10-year window. So, um, I mean, the town needs to do something to provide more funds to the schools because, I mean, it's, it's our students. We can't really wait on the state government to bail us out, and we, we need to, if we care for our students, we care for their well-being, their futures, and their, their development, and also we want to keep the status of Franklin the way it is, we need to invest in ourselves and our future. So, uh, but as I said earlier, thank you for this presentation. This has been very, very well thought out. Uh, I can't imagine how many hours and sleepless nights that you've both and all, everybody's work on this has put in. Um, but Miriam, I know you're, this has been a lot of your work and, and I appreciate everything you do. Thank you. Thank you both so much. We are now producing this in collaboration with Franklin TV and Franklin Public Radio. This podcast is my public service effort for Franklin, but we can't do it alone. We can always use your help. How can you help? If you can use the information that you find here, please tell your friends and neighbors. If you don't like something here, please let me know. Through this feedback loop, we can continue to make improvements. And I thank you for listening. For additional information, please visit franklinmatters.org. If you have questions or comments, you can reach me directly at suresteve at gmail.com. The music for the intro and exit was provided by Michael Clark and the group East of Shirley. The piece is titled Ernesto Manana, copyright Michael Clark and Tintype Tunes in 2008, and used with their permission. I hope you enjoy. By the way, you can also subscribe and listen to Franklin Matters Radio on your favorite podcast app. Search in podcasts for Franklin Matters.